Hey, everybody, welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and uh, Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my Pillar co-founder, uh, Ed the Condor Condon. It's been a while since we've heard from you. Condor, how are you doing? Uh, I, I'm, I'm doing pretty well, thank you. Good. I, I am glad to hear it. Now, uh, before we get started, there are a couple things that we want to talk about. Um, and you, oh, it looks like you are doing things with your microphone. I'm just, I'm, I'm sounding very, very loud in my own ears. And so I'm worried that I'm going to melt the speakers of anyone listening to this podcast. So I was just turning it down a was smidge. Your gain too high? I don't know. It was this, I haven't touched it since last week, but uh, it's the little colored bar that sort of is the traffic light green, yellow. Yeah, red, yeah, yeah. It's, if I say anything at all, I'm into yellow, and you know, if you if you upset me even a little bit, I, I can only assume I'll go straight into red. Well, I don't think that I'm going to upset you. You never think you're going to, JD. <laughs> <laughs> oh, listen. Well, before we get started, there are a couple things. I, I suspect everyone is interested in having us talk about some things that are happening in the news right now, because what we do on this show is talk about things that are happening in the news. But before we do that, I wanted to talk about something uh, that you and I have been kind of taking under consideration here at The Pillar, and it's this. And it's really a question for you, listeners. I'm on the fence about it, and I think is also on the fence about it. There's a cost for us, namely, like we have to, I don't know, take off. You know, Ed can't be wearing that old Mets jersey every single day, the same one. But we have been... (laughs) That's um, not funny. There's nothing (laughs) funny about people wearing Mets jerseys. We have been talking uh, about the idea, and and neither one of us is sort of in one direction or the other, Um, but we have been talking at least about the prospect of, in addition to making this podcast something that you can listen to with your um, ears, uh, something which you can observe with your eyes. In other words, we have been talking about also uh, broadcasting the video tape of this podcast making it available to you uh, on, on the, I suppose, on YouTube or some other thing like that. And I don't know. I mean, you know, Ed, there's a, I, I know, I know that, that, that people like video content. I don't really watch a lot of sort of video content, but I know that people like video content. So if it would, I think our podcast is a value. I, I hope that it's helpful to Catholics, both in sort of thinking about the church and the world from a Catholic lens, but I also hope they just kind of like it. And I guess if more people liked it and wanted to watch it than listen to it, I'd be glad for it. But I don't know. I, I kind of go, I'm not committed to the idea. It sounds dangerously like television to me. <laughs> and and you know I have strong opinions about soi-disant television journalism. You do have strong feelings about television. You are, n- neither of us is a fan of uh both of us recognize the profound limitations of the television medium, especially for journalistic endeavors. And the profound that. limitations of so-called TV journalists. Yeah. And the... <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. Some of them are very, very good at reading out loud. I'm, they, they can do that and, and you know, make it look like they're not moving their eyes too much. And that's, a, I guess, a highly, you know, a highly in-demand professional skill. And and some of them go out into the field and, and they do the really hard work of sitting in a director's chair across from someone, looking deep into their eyes and saying, and how did that make you feel? <laughs> so your perception is that every television journalist is either 
uh, an anchor. I don't know the names of any anchors. Or like Barbara Walters doing a Barbara Walter interview. There I, are three I, television journalists in the world, J.D. There's the guy behind the desk or girl uh, who reads out loud for a living. Strong. Bravo. There's the there's the person whose job it is to stand outside in the rain and affirm that it is, in fact, raining in the place where they are standing <laughs> on camera. Um, and then there's the third one, which is the sort of, you know, frontline field reporter whose job it is to find someone whose house has just been affected by bad weather and to ask them how that made you feel. I, and I, usually I, how it makes them feel is homeless, J.D., and really, really upset. And they don't need some idiot mountebank from, you know, a local news affiliate <laughs> sticking a microphone in their face and saying, and how did, at this worst moment of your life, could you emote for me for a little bit? Because this is journalism. Oh, <laughs> give me a break. I, I will I, – I can see that those are types in television journalism. And I don't know. I've, I actually – I don't have – Cable, and so the last like time that I would have been a regular watcher of TV news pro- probably is, you know, nigh on twenty years ago. Um, but I did watch something that was on that was a visual kind of a news thing recently. Well, not so recently, but within the last couple of months. Which was, did you see the Jonathan Swan? Jonathan Swan is a journalist at Axios, and did you see that Jonathan Swan interview of President Trump that that I think he did a few I, months I did. before? I actually the, thought it was a spoof when I first saw it. Right, and the reason you thought it was a spoof is because Jonathan Swan was um, was asking hard, detailed, specific questions, and the president was not particularly keen on well, that. He was also referring to a, a series of charts that looked like they had been drawn in crayon by a five-year-old, um, which is what I found particularly affecting by that. Uh, which is why you thought it was a spoof. The point is, it was a, it was a, it was an, it was an interview. It was one of, the, it was I thought a very good interview. I'd put it in the top ten interviews of twenty twenty, uh, the year, not the show with Barbara Walters. Uh, I, I thought it was a very good interview, and it was done. And I thought it was particularly a good interview because the visuality brought something to it that would not have been conveyed, or would actually would not have been conveyed appropriately in print. I mean, um, if you if he had sort of depicted that scene as he wrote up his interview, it would have seemed like so much editorializing. And instead, the the, the visuals told the story. So I would say that there is something that, in, in that case at least, television journalism brought to the table that um, print journalism itself might not have. Right, but I, I don't... I'm, I'm obviously a print journalist by choice. I, I understand. And I, I will concede the specific there. But I, I would also note, I don't think Jonathan Swan nor Axios could be described as primarily um, television... No, they couldn't. Output. And neither journalists. could we. And neither could we, which is precisely, precisely why I think that, you know, we could do this show fundamentally with a video component without sort of being what you're most afraid of being in life, which is a... a uh, a, a, a TV journalist, a or prompter I jockey. You like to think that a prompter jockey is exactly what I knew you were going to say. So I don't know. The, the, the question, I suppose, is really for you, dear listeners. And then I'll have a question for you, Ed. Is that something that is actually of interest to people? I don't know. I mean, it's sort of. We're, I, I we're think like, what you're trying to ask them, JD, is how does that make you feel? Right. How does that? Make, yeah. Look how quickly I become. But look, w- the pillar is a learning experience for us. We are learning. What works and what doesn't work. We're trying things. Some of them have worked. Some of them haven't worked. Um, but I'm, I myself would be willing to give that a try if it was something that our listeners were interested in. And especially 
you know, if it were something that would motivate our, that was motivating to our listeners to to uh, to subscribe, to hit that subscribe button at pillarcatholic.com and subscribe to the great journalism they get there. But I don't know, Ed. What would what would uh, would you be inclined to do it, and under what conditions? I, I would not be inclined to do it, but I I have to pay rent. So if <laughs> I really want the pillar to exist this time next year, and to do so, we have to grow. So if that, I guess what I'm saying is, if that's what it takes, I'm. With that much of my dignity, I am willing to part for the greater good. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, well, anyway, listeners, you know what to do. Let us know on ha- the very many ways that you communicate with us, which is which is many. I mean, you communicate with us by Twitter. I get Facebook messages from listeners. I get emails from listeners. I have gotten a letter in the mail from a listener. So What? I've gotten a letter in the mail from a listener. Have you not? No. You have gotten, but here's what's interesting about you, Ed. You have not gotten letters directly in the mail from listeners, but you have gotten packages delivered to our friends, people uh, people who we're friends with in Washington, D.C. Packages have been sent to you, care of, friends of ours in D.C., and then hand-delivered to you. So, so you're really not in a position to be shocked by the fact that I've gotten a letter because you have gotten fundamentally your own courier service. No, hang on. I'm not, I'm not shocked that someone wished to send you a letter. Who wouldn't? Yeah. I mean, I'm uh, who I, I, I like, you're an engaging correspondent. I, I, yeah, I would imagine I lots of people would want to say, I'm horrified that someone at the, at the idea that someone could find out where you live. Uh, no, I don't make much effort to, I, I, to be perfectly honest, I think anybody could find out where I live pretty quickly. I, I don't make much effort to, um, hide that you you I know are a very private person and you uh, do make an effort to uh, conceal in as much as possible where you live because you don't want anyone to find you but I, I think it would not be all that difficult for anyone to find where I live I don't know how you sleep at night I really don't but okay <laughs> behind first of all locked door second of all Here's the thing. If anyone, we do some reporting on some serious things. If anyone wanted to sort of get me because of our reporting, they'd get me, right? Because in addition to where I live, I go to church, I go to the grocery store, I go to the gas station. Right, but you never go to the same one twice in a row. The funny thing is, I'm pretty sure you're serious. Of course I'm serious. That's weird, man. The only place that I went to on a regular basis until recently was the local gas station because I could buy my preferred brand of cigarettes, gas for my car, and propane for my its raining grill. Um, and they haven't restocked their propane tanks in more than a month now, so I've stopped going there because I can't get Really? Is there some sort of a propane shortage or something? I've often wondered this, although, you know, the, the Walgreens across the road still has propane, but of course from a different yeah, supplier and a different size canister, and I can't exchange my ones there, so now I have to go to the Home Depot where you have to go inside and stand in line. It's a whole thing. It, it's been it, it's been an actual real inconvenience for me. Um, but yeah, apart from that gas station, which I now no longer go to because they don't sell all three of the things that one would want from one's gas station, I, yeah, why would you, I, I don't understand because, Ed, I genuinely believe that, first of all, I I don't think there are that many people who are keen to get me. Maybe it only maybe means one. I, fair enough. Second of all, I, I <laughs> because I refuse to let that I refuse to let them win, Ed. Whoever the whoever, whatever mafia it is that you imagine is keen to to take me out, I refuse to let them win. I'll live I'll I'll live my life, and if they want to get me, buddy. They come and get me. I, you know how I sleep at night. 
with a Louisville slugger underneath my bed. Well, I And mean, not only do I know how to use it, but Mrs. Flynn knows how to use it. And Mrs. Flynn is tough. I would not want to be on the receiving end of Mrs. Flynn in a, in a Louisville slugger. I, I would not either. Speaking of uh, Louisville sluggers, let's, uh, let's begin by talking about the Archdiocese of Washington. You like that transition? It's totally meaningless. I was about to say, you, you, I've yeah, no, it's, step it's, here, but, okay, yes, let's talk about the Archdiocese but, of Washington. But one thing I've learned from television journalism, Ed, is that one can just give the impression of a meaningful transition and people will take it for what it's worth. That's true. Uh, speaking of meaningful transitions, let's get talking about the Archdiocese of Washington. Okay, so we reported, we're recording the show on Thursday, the 4th of March, and uh, I'm recording, a, <laughs> for those of you who might be inclined to get me, I'm recording my end from my home office in Littleton, Colorado. Ed is re- recording his end from some undisclosed location <laughs> that he's I, I never been to before and will never be again. I'm, I'm happy for people to know that I live in what could be loosely described as the greater Washington metropolitan area. <laughs> Okay, so uh, um, we reported yesterday. I'm willing to give you that much. Yeah, isn't all of the greater Washington metropolitan area south of Baltimore? Yes. Okay. We reported uh, we reported yesterday on Wednesday that um, the Archdiocese of Washington's 2020 and 2019 combined fin- financial statements contain a designated. F- uh, f- set of assets, a designated net asset of roughly $2 million um, assigned to the category of continuing ministry of the Archbishop Emeritus. The Archbishop Emeritus of the Archdiocese of Washington is Cardinal Donald Worrell, who resigned uh, from that position, the position of Archbishop of Washington in 2018, late 2018, I think October, amid um, allegations that he had um, known about uh, the um, uh, serial sexual misconduct of Theodore McCarrick and insufficiently monitored McCarrick, insufficiently um, held the, the Holy See to account, insufficiently held McCarrick to account, and um, and then was dishonest about the whole thing. He resigned under those allegations, and it later, in fact, turned out to be true that Worrell had known about several allegations against McCarrick for um, quite some time, and had misrepresented himself, to say the least, to the public when he made a series of denials about what he knew or didn't know. So those allegations were true. At any rate, Wuerl submitted his resignation at that time, and uh, and actually his resignation was accepted, but he remained the apostolic administrator, kind of the guy in charge, of the Archdiocese of Washington until uh, May of 2019, when now Cardinal Wilton Gregory was installed as the Archbishop of Washington. So since May of 2019, Wuerl has been wholly retired, and since November of 2020, uh, when Wuerl turned 80, he has been also retired from the duties that he had as a cardinal at the Vatican. So he's a member of some uh, congregations and committees at the Vatican, and when you turn 80, you're no longer those things. Uh, Nevertheless, despite being wholly retired, the 2020 and 2019 combined financial statements of the Archdiocese of Washington indicate uh, $2 million of designated funds for the continuing ministry activities of the Archbishop Emeritus of Washington. And we, uh, upon discovering that, asked the Archdiocese about it, uh, got no uh, answer, but thought it was interesting, uh, to say the least, that a cardinal who retired, not wholly under scandal, but re- retired under difficult circumstances. Under a cloud, um, I think. Would under be a cloud. Under a cloud was uh, assigned $2 million uh, for ministry activities. Now, I want to say, before you jump in, I want to clarify one thing. 
Some people have thought this means that he was getting $2 million per year. Uh, no, it's not like that. It's more like a fund um, set aside for Wuerl's ministry activities was accumulating money. So at the close of fiscal year 2019, in June 2019, that fund was worth uh, roughly $1.5 million. And by June 30, 2020, that fund was worth two point. One million or so. Um, 2.012. Money was 2.012. Thank you. The money was piling up, um, but it's not as if they were putting two million each year. I think people had that misunderstanding, and I think we should be clear about that. But the story has gotten even more interesting, hasn't it, Ed? It has. Um, you know, when we when we were going through the archdiocesan financial statements, as we do, because that's the kind of thing we do at the pillar. You know, we like reading them. We like reading them. We think that you know. Interesting things are often in the details of boring paperwork, and that's why we bother to read it. Mm -hmm. Um, So to to put it mildly, this raised some questions for us. Uh, You know, what what do you do with a cardinal when he's all done being a cardinal? You know, to, to paraphrase a song, you know, what is the continuing ministry of a retired cardinal? Who is, oh, what do you do with a cardinal when he's retired? Okay, go ahead. Exactly. Um, because $2 million seems like a... A lot of money. A lot of money. Um, and, and just for cl- for clarity and context on that, the USCCB recommends that retired bishops get a stipend of less than 2500 a month plus housing and health care. Yeah. And that, a secretary. That's sort of your, you know, thanks. thank you for playing. Enjoy your retirement. Yeah. That's your yeah. gold watch, as it were. So $2 million mm-hmm. seems like a lot. And uh, so we asked the Archdiocese of Washington uh, several times repeatedly uh, over, across two days. If, if they would care to give us some indication of, of what the continuing ministry of Cardinal Worrell is for the archdiocese. Um, you know, not, I, I want to be clear. I, these were, th- these were honest questions because I'm open to the idea that Cardinal Worrell, you know, had some stuff on the go. Maybe he was, you know, doing something. I don't know. Um, and an answer came there none, uh, repeatedly. And so then we said, well, okay, to give you a bit more context here, you have allocated this $2 million fund uh, f- to support his continuing ministry. So what is it you imagine he's doing that requires $2 million potentially to do? And again, answer came there, none. Um, and I-, I just want to pause by saying, what possible benefit is there to refusing to answer basic, simple questions from journalists. I do not know. Right. I've had a couple of people indicate to me this morning, this morning being Thursday, the day after we first published this story, uh, that I, I I might have uh, made a better effort to discover, you know, what the money was being used for and, you know, establish some, some innocent uh, intentions for all of this and everything. It's like, well, there's only so much you can do when you're trying to figure out how a cardinal is spending money that is under the direct auspices of the archdiocese which is you can go to the archdiocese and ask them and if they tell you to get lost there's not much you can do with that so right you know i i find that incredibly frustrating and, and senseless but i mean that's how they choose to play it so i i'm not in control of that um but the response that we got by proxy because today um i guess the response to our story was significant was uh, significant enough that they felt the need they had to put out a statement clarifying the situation they said that basically they being the archdiocese they being the archdiocese of washington said that the 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 funds in this fund the money the money in this fund uh if you like is money that was donated with a specific intention of supporting cardinal world you know supporting his travel to rome while he was still on you know different vatican congregations supporting whatever ministerial activities he would get up to um 
supporting whatever charitable donations he wanted to make or, you know, when organizations come to him and say, can you support us? You know, so that he had basically some money in his pocket that he could give to worthy Catholic causes and all that stuff. And in itself, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, if, if that's what Catholics want to give their money to, I, I think there's there's nothing wrong with that. And we know we've talked before uh, on a different podcast in a different era of our lives uh, about how many sitting diocesan bishops have sort of, you know, discretionally giving funds that they might use, you know, if they come across a family that, you know, can't make rent in their diocese and they want to help. You know, there's, there's plenty of reasons why um, bishops might want to have access to discretionary giving funds. But in this case, it was a huge amount. It was, for example, uh, larger by a factor of more than four than the amount the archdiocese had earmarked for charitable giving itself. For its own charitable giving. Which yeah. was 400000 um, And double the amount set aside, allocated for priestly formation. Yeah. So, you know, this is a big number, not just objectively, but relative to other uh, ways in which the archdiocese has deployed its unrestricted assets. And we'll come back to this in just a second. So it, it, it's a legitimate question to ask. Why, why is the Archdiocese setting aside this much money for, for such a thing? Now, if donors want to give to that, that's fine. That's It's their money. They can give it how they want. But Well, I actually am going to challenge that a little bit. Make your point, and then I'm going to come back to that. Well, no, actually, I was going to fold it into the wider thing about donor uh, okay. intentions. Okay. I'm going to challenge that a little bit because um, uh, if donors want to offer their money for the support of a retired cardinal, that is fine. Um, but I, I have to ask you, and I guess this is the broader point for me of the whole deal, is um, if donors come and say, hey, we would like to see a retired cardinal world, or any retired cardinal for that matter, live in a manner of um, of, of comfort and, and uh, be able to travel freely and those kinds of things. And so we'd like to set up a little fund of $2 million for an 80-year-old man. Um, at what point, I, I honestly ask, in addition, to, a man, by the way, who almost certainly is vested in a pension because of his longtime ministry as a priest and who, you know, has a right by the diocese to a certain small stipend each month, each, uh, each month what, uh, and participates in the Archdiocesan health, health Plan and all that money, which is already budgeted, what obligation do the, does the Archdiocese have at a certain point to say, hey, listen, it's 2021, and we've said some things about wanting to get away from um, a clericalist model in which Clerics are sort of above reproach and are able to live, you know, very comfortably without sort of accountability of their finances. And the Holy Father is really encouraging clerics on the whole to live very simply. At what point does the Archdiocese have to say to donors, we're laying off 17 people this year. How about instead of $2 million for um, the upkeep of our retired cardinal, you throw us $2 million and we can keep half the jobs we're about to slice? At what point does the diocese have that responsibility? Well, the diocese may well have that responsibility. My my comment was more on if that's what Catholics want to give their money to, it's their money to give as they want. Um, yeah, I, but there's there's moral giving and there's not moral. And right. Well, there's certainly a question of prudence. Um, but you know, it is what it is. But but where where we are now with the story, I think is is an equally interesting thing, uh, which is <laughs> yes, it is. What has happened is, oh, well, actually, before we move on, one last thing is you mentioned, uh, you know, it's 2021, we need to get to a place of greater financial transparency. And there are some serious questions about financial transparency here, which we are going to go into. But I would just parenthetically note that the idea of a dedicated fund for the maintenance of a retired archbishop and to fund whatever charitable giving he wishes to do is is not unknown in the Archdiocese of Washington. A similar fund uh, existed for Archbishop Theodore 
McCarrick as he then was, or I should say Cardinal Theodore McCarrick as he then was in retirement in the Archdiocese of Washington. Um, he had to turn over control of that, that fund to Cardinal Whirl in mm-hmm. 2018 after uh, accusations of sexual abuse were, were made public. So we have in that sense been here before, although I would note that the thing, and I know this because, you know, I spent a reasonable amount of time reporting on McCarrick's Archbishop's Fund, uh, at least in this case, they reported it. It was in the financial statements. Yeah, yeah. The McCarrick Fund was off books. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, I guess credit where it's due to the Archdiocese of Washington now for at least putting this thing in the in the financial they, they wrote down. They wrote down there is a, an account with $2 million bucks in it with Cardinal Worrell's name on it. That's not the same as saying, and here's what he's doing with the money. No, 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 no. Here's how it's and, covered. Again, and, yeah. Plenty of other questions that are raised about it. But, I mean, it is – it's something where there was previously nothing, is all I'm saying. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there are there are wider questions here. Uh, not just the is this the best use of funds, but also to what extent does the diocese have any discretion over this? Because and here's the thing, the archdiocesan statement today, Thursday, said, look, this is money that was given for the specific intention of supporting Cardinal Worrell and whatever mm-hmm. Cardinal Worrell wants to support. Yeah. Which in a you know again, questions of prudence aside, fine. That's if that's what it is. That's what it is. But here's the thing: in the actual financial statements, it says that no, this is this is money that was allocated for this purpose by the archdiocese out of unrestricted funds. That is right. funds given without any donor restrictions or intentions or spe- specified purposes attached to it. Right. So which is it? If it's fund, if it's restricted funds that were given for a specific purpose, that goes in an entirely different section of the archdiocesan financial statements, which exists and which details other assets which are ring fenced because right. there were donor intentions. But this was not right. there. This was listed as an unrestricted asset that the archdiocese had made the conscious decision to put towards the continuing ministry of the Archbishop Emeritus when it could right. have put it towards other things. And that's what's raised the question about prudence here is. According to their own independently audited financial statements, they right. could have done whatever they wanted with this money. And right. instead, they've said, no, we're putting it at the disposal of Cardinal World. Now, you can't have it both ways. Either the, the accounts are correct and the Archdiocese of Washington can do whatever it wants with this money, in which case I would point to the unfunded pension liability. The unfunded li- liability is a ticking time bomb. They have uh, – what looks to me like – and I can't get uh, – Absolute confirmation on this, but what looks to me like thirty-seven million dollars of unfunded pension liability. Now that doesn't mean they have to pay it right now, but it means if their priests live according to the actuarial tables, and if their priests need the typical, you know, the average medical expenses according to actuarial tables, they're going to have to pay out thirty-seven million dollars that they don't have. Right. So a two million here, two million there, we might actually make a dent in that. Which right. you know, so. <laughs> I- Either this is unrestricted funds, as it is claimed to be in the independently audited financial statements of the archdiocese, or it is what the archdiocese has said today in its statement it is, which is ring-fenced donor-intended money. Right. Which is it? You can't have it both ways. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I just – I get so frustrated by this because honestly when we found this, I thought this is a ridiculously large amount of money to put towards this particular line item as described in the accounts. There has to be an explanation for this, but – my God, do I want to hear that explanation? And what we got was nothing. Right. I mean, and, the, was... and, the, and the eventual sort of explanation, which was not given to us, but was sort of broadly put out there, the eventual explanation is like, oh, well, you know, donors gave this money. But <laughs> again, 
there needs to be there there needs to be clarity on what it means that donors gave this money because there's potentially serious legal trouble if the archdiocese misrepresented itself in its audited financial statements if they had restricted gifts and they for some reason categorized them as unrestricted net assets which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me but if it happened they could have some potentially serious legal consequences about it on the other hand if they just put out a statement which is not true if donors didn't give them restricted gifts and they're now saying that those are restricted gifts that's a problem too the br- big picture of both of those problems is that this is a this feels ed to me like a 2018 story. I mean, we were in 2018 yeah. chasing down renovations and other things in the Archdiocese of Washington, and the Archdiocese of Washington was, you know, we had the sort of our great headline of world denies denial when world was sort of backpedaling on things and we're looking into who was renovating McCarrick's apartments. That's what we were doing then. And then Archbishop Gregory came in 2019 and there was this idea that transparency had arrived at the Archdiocese of Washington and where the Archdiocese of Washington would go. What he said was when he arrived at his first press conference, I know because I was there, the old way of circling the wagons does not work. Right. I will always tell you the truth. Right. And the idea was... Um, the idea was, you know, that the church had learned, uh, the, the hierarchical constitution of the church had learned some lessons and was moving forward. And this, there are still unanswered questions here. Um, there are still serious unanswered questions here, which, um, which could, may well be answered. But the, the problem is, uh, the problem is that the questions have not been answered, right? So, um, you know, we're asking questions and, and they're not getting answered. That is in itself the problem. That feels like 2018 and the old way of circling the wagons. And it points to this question about like, why is $2 million set aside for the card, retired cardinal? And, you know, why are is there, there are, are there accounting ambiguities? And why is the Archdiocese of Washington stonewalling the reporters who are asking about it? All of it points to um, a need, a continued need, an ongoing need for both reform and renewal. Reform is um, administrative, hierarchical, top-down change in the church's policies and procedures by which this kind of thing would not happen because there was more transparency and there were limitations placed on how much money a bishop could have in what is effectively a slush fund. Um, And renewal is docility and deference to the Holy Spirit as we all grow in a greater desire to serve the church's mission, zeal for souls, and, and eagerness for our own holiness. And I've been we've been talking and thinking and writing and reporting about those things for a lot of years now, and uh, and this is like the church is still in need of renewal. Which I guess you know the maxim is the church is always in need of renewal. On the other hand, boy, when are we going to see that the old way of circling the wagons is over? I I don't know. And I mean the thing that annoys me about this is everything you said for sure. This does. I mean, doesn't just feel a little bit like 2018. It is just. The names are changed. There's there's a different cardinal actually in the chair and a different cardinal in retirement, but we're still looking at, you know, a slush fund for his retirement and trying to, you know, it, it's like, you know, why do we always have to be here? But the thing that really annoys me about this is not only are there no spiritual lessons learned here, not only are there no ecclesiological lessons that appear to have been learned here, but again, it's just, prof- it's a question of professionalism. Like if you can't be sincere, mm-hmm. at least be serious. <laughs> you know, if you're going to be uncooperative with journalists, don't wait 24 hours and then issue a general release through the diocesan newspaper that asserts something which is nakedly at odds with your yeah. own audited financial statements. I mean, you know, be, be a pro- can we not at least have some professionalism? I appreciate That's that. I am less offended by how they, how the Archdiocese of Washington is treating us because, you know, what, 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 what but no, I, in general, us, I am, I am general. discouraged to see 
uh, I'm discouraged to see that, you know, that we're in the same boat. I think you're right. We're in the same boat. And this, you know, reporting the the unrestricted fund piece, which we reported today, the question about how this stuff was reported, which is very serious. I was saying to you before, it felt like to me, like you and I as canon lawyers have spent a lot of time in diocesan finance council meetings over the years. And um, it felt like, boy, that's paying off because we're really seeing, <laughs> uh, you know, we're seeing this and we're able to report it and hold some measure of accountability. And I'm glad we are. But um, every time that happens, you know, we, we have to continue to ask ourselves, what will be um, the institutional response to ensure some measure of accountability? It, it has been said for a long time. It's been, you know, said to the point of becoming a cliche that the sexual abuse, the, the magnitude of the sexual abuse scandal in the church, in a certain sense, pales in comparison to the magnitude of financial scandal that is both in which there are elements of criminality and elements of ineptitude. And um, and I I wonder if I hope that it's not the case that we have just reported. Um, the first set of stories on what will be a long slog through the church's need for serious financial reform at the diocesan level. But having worked in the diocese, you having done a lot of consultation with diocese, we know that there are a lot of things that are are genuinely in need of reform. Well, all I know is the fish rots from the head, man. And if what I know about Vatican finances is any indication, I find it difficult to believe that there isn't a lot of stories like this in different dioceses. And it's extremely disheartening, and the church is going to continue to lose a lot of money at the institutional level and it's going to have an impact on the church's institutional footprint in terms of schools in terms of charitable outreach in terms of parishes and i find that all deeply depressing but you know part of me wonders if you know this isn't just part of the necessary winter before the spring that you know to have, i hope that when john paul talked about the new springtime of evangelization we hadn't yet had the winter yet i hope that's so that's a well said I, I, yeah, I, it, it is what it is, and it doesn't make me happy. But, you know, I'm. we've both talked in the last week uh, in different places. You were asked about your opinion, and I wasn't asked mine, but whatever, um, about the vocation <laughs> of Catholic journalism. And, you know, it's never fun covering all of this stuff ad nauseum. Uh, but, you know, it's part of... Uh, I mean, it's Lent, man. This is this is a good stories. Working on stories like this are a good reason for me to constantly be asking myself, why am I doing this? Why do I care about this? Not in a sort of, oh, I should just give up, but in a sort of, you know, to make sure I have in front of me at all times that the goal here is really to make sure the church is the best possible version of itself, that it's not adversarial towards the church. You know, I don't consider Cardinal Whirl an enemy or a mark or a target. Or right, he's, certainly a, he's, not a, Cardinal he's Gregory. a successor of the apostles and um, and someone, a, a member of the baptized, in as much need of God's mercy as I am, and a brother in Christ, if nothing else. Right, and, and frankly, probably less in need of God's mercy than I am in many ways. And, you know, to, to make sure that, that, that I have that um, in front of me during all of this, that, you know, does, is the church always in need of reform? Of course. Is some of this stuff incredibly frustrating and depressing to report? Yeah, definitely. Does it, do I think it needs to be reported? Yes. And is, you know, but what for? In the hope that, you know, we, we will little by little get better, that the church will get better, that, you know, she can become ever more authentically what she is in her essential nature, which is, you know, the sacrament of salvation for the whole world. Yeah. That's, I think that's right. And I, I, it's really helpful and important to have. We were talking about this in, in another way yesterday. We were saying we want to make sure that we're not trying, you know, we we don't, we want to make sure that we don't want this story because we want to dunk on Cardinal World. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't ever sort of want a story that will, especially one that makes it harder for people to be a Catholic just to get it. 
But I sincerely think that it, it behooves all of us, one, to pray for the reform and the renewal of the church, two, that there needs to be a mechanism of public accountability, and three, um, you know, also, as you say, I'm glad you said it, that th- these kinds of things will also catalyze in us a deeper kind of self-examination about our own integrity and fidelity uh, to the gospel. And just one thing I want to point out, um, because I've seen a lot of this on Twitter in the last 24 hours, uh, particularly in response to this story, is people saying, yeah, I'm not giving another penny to the the Cardinal's appeal in, in D.C., you know, I, not another dime, you know, find, you know, effectively asymmetrical ways of giving your money to the church, you know, give directly to Catholic charities, don't support your parish, don't support your diocese, you know, all that. I want to be very clear. I put in for the collection of my parish. I put in for the Archbishop's appeal in my diocese. I give money to Peter's Pence. And believe me, if anyone has reason to believe the money that goes to Peter's Pence is not being properly administered, it is me. I don't care. The church and the hierarchy have a legitimate claim on the money in my bank account as a Catholic that I have a canonical obligation to support the church's institutional ministries. And I continue to do so, and I would encourage everyone else to continue to do so according to their own means. That... Um, seeing things that we think are open to criticism or where there is clear scope for impro- for improvement does not mean that we are absolved from the canonical obligation to support the church and her ministries. We do. I just want to be absolutely clear about that. We do have that obligation. I, I'm increasingly, <laughs> I am, to be honest, you know, I have long been the guy who on this show and elsewhere says, I give to the appeal because I think I should. I give to the parish because I think I should. I, I'm increasingly sympathetic to people who say, that's you know, and and I've been long the guy who says, look, um, the difference between tithing and philanthropy is that tithing you just hand your money over to the church as a you know as the body of Christ and don't you know and and accept that that's a spiritual discipline for your good as much as um, for anything else. And philanthropy is where you use your money to try to achieve goods, but by exercising some measure of control, which is not bad. It's just different. I, I I've long been saying that, and I think it is true, and and all those things, but. I'm increasingly, I am increasingly, increasingly sympathetic to people who say, yeah, but I I look at this and I'm less inclined to put um, more money here than I have some moral obligation to put. And I think that's true because there does need to be, this story, uh, I think for me at least, points to a cycle of of, um, arrogance or disconnectedness or something that is, um, yeah, understandably jarring. I'm still doing it though. I know, and and I'm still doing it too. But I'm but I'm increasingly sympathetic. Um, also, I just like being able to tell people, no, actually, I still give to Peter Spence. <laughs> Peter Spence is another story, which we'll talk about another time. But um, before we do that, we we we're trying to keep this show under um, an hour for a couple of reasons. But okay, well, in that case, JD, speaking of money and scandal and sexual abuse and U.S. dioceses, um, there was another story that we reported a little bit on since the last time we recorded this podcast that that sort of rounds all those bases. One, I don't know what it is, but two, that is one heck of a TV news transition, my friend. Hey, speaking of that, here's the thing. I mean, heck, you could be heading right now to the Elizabeth Ann Seton Alexander Hamilton story that we ran on Monday. It would be a census transition, but I'd take it because it's a good TV news transition. But Ed, what, um, what the hell are you talking about? I, I was talking about Chicago. Chicago, Chicago. Yeah, let's talk about Chicago. I think a lot of people think that we're going to talk about the appointment of Cardinal Tobin to the Congregation for Bishops. So I'm going to say one thing about that for 30 seconds, then we're going to talk about Chicago. My my 30-second thing, you can say a 30-second thing. Here's mine. Okay. Uh, Cardinal Tobin is appointed to the Congregation for Bishops, which is the congregation that, over, that helps the Pope essentially select diocesan bishops. 
I think that Cardinal Tobin's influence at the Congregation for Bishops will have considerable effect on the makeup of the U.S. Bishop Episcopate over the next few uh, over the next few decades, and we should we can be we'll, we'll see whether that is true or not in the kinds of appointments that come out. And it is what it is. That's all I have to say. I would agree with all that and merely add, I was not surprised by this announcement. I had been expecting it since November when Cardinal Worrell aged out of the Congregation for Bishops. Uh, Well, I was surprised by it because I sort of, only because I sort of had forgotten to be thinking about it. But bully for you, brother. (laughs) All right. Bully for you means good for you, right, in English? In your kind of English for England? Yeah, but, you know, depending on inflection, it can be a sarcastic thing which I kind of felt like that was, but, you know, that's all right. Uh, Oh, let me try again. Bully for you. Yeah, I feel like that was even more sarcastic. Okay, let's get this That's fine. JD, tell tell me about, and by me, I mean tell our our rapt audience, please, uh, about the latest developments in the the case of St. Sabina Parish on Chicago's south side and the case of Father Michael Flager. Yeah, I don't know how much we've talked about it on the show uh, already. Father Michael Flager is the longtime pastor Asterisk, we'll come back to that, of St. Sabina Parish in, on the south side of Chicago and is well known because he is a social activist of a certain type. He has, he has had um, pre- various presidential candidates and various political candidates at the parish. His having you at the parish is often seen as a sort of mark of, of, uh, of um, uh, endorsement. He has led various marches against gun violence and other things um, over the years, starting from the parish. He famously feuded with Hillary Clinton in 2008, although I can't really remember the details and I didn't write down any notes about that. He had Louis Farrakhan at the parish one time, which was a subject of great controversy. I think he eventually apologized for that. Anyway, he's a social activist in the South Side who's also the pastor of St. Sabina Parish. Uh, a couple of months ago, uh, no, early January, Father Flager January fifth, he was January fifth. Uh, thank you, removed January 5th. from ministry. Father Flager was removed from ministry because January fourth, he was uh, accused of um, serially sexually abusing a boy in the nineteen seventies uh, and nineteen eighties. Um, he was removed from the parish. Uh, the diocese began an investigation. The parish, from the very beginning, said that he was innocent. Insisted that he was innocent. Said that this was not right. This was a shakedown. He, Father Flager, said it was a shakedown. You know that the person was just trying to get money. Um, which is an unusual reaction because a lot of times when a person is accused of sexual abuse, they are not that vocal about their perspective on it. And very rarely is a parish sort of that vocal on this is a shakedown of our pastor. Um, you know, the sort of like um, it was a, it was very surprising to see how quickly the parish dismissed the allegation against Father Flager. Well, two weeks later, another allegation of sexual abuse was made uh, against Father Flager, actually by the brother of the first accuser. And um, the diocese continued to investigate. Father Flager continued to maintain his innocence. The parish had a protest, a couple of protests, I think, saying that Father Flager should be reinstated. Um, and in the last week or two, there have been two developments. One, a third allegation against Father Flager, a similar fact pattern, a, a man who alleges that uh, in the 1970s and 80s, Father Flager gave him marijuana and alcohol and sexually abused him, which is a pattern that fits many things, you know, many cases of clerical sexual abuse that I myself have um, been involved in in one way or another. And the parish said that it was going to withhold the money that it sends to the archdiocese every month, which it said amounted to roughly $100,000 per month. Now, the parish is taxed by the archdiocese, as all parishes are, and you called the parish and talked to them about it, and they said that their tax uh, is equivalent to, which is a portion of their offertory, they say 10% of their offertory, is equivalent to 13000 
a month. But they said the rest of the money, the 87000 is their insurance payments for for parish and school, their liability insurance for parish and school, various other fees and various other things that are administered by the archdiocese but are actually things that they themselves purchase you know, and make use of. But in any case, they said that they were going to withhold all of that money uh, until Father Flager was returned to the parish. What's really interesting here is who said that. So that statement, like many statements related to the Flager case, was um, released by the cabinet of the parish, which as best as we can tell is essentially the parish finance council. I think it might just be the parish council, actually. I mean, I, I looked yeah, up the roster maybe the parish, of council. The parish cabinet, and I mean, it seems to be everyone with a job title in the parish. Oh, the people who work there. So, so the employees of the parish. Well, I'm. I, I don't want to say employees because I'm unclear who's salaried and who's not. Fair enough. Okay, but anyhow, people who are involved, um, people with official positions. I, I think we can say that. Yeah, people with official positions. This is not the, the demos of the of the parish. Yeah, the the that's right. Well said. The head of the parish cabinet is a priest who is now appointed the administrator of the parish in the absence of Father Flager, was appointed the administrator of the parish when Father Flager was removed. But it's a little bit curious to us because before Father Flager was removed, he had the title of pastor and Father Flager had the title of senior pastor. Senior pastor is an an actual canonical term. Pastor is the the pastor is the pastor of a parish. There's an actual canon, guys, that says the pastor is, you know, a parish is a portion of the people of God entrusted to a pastor as its proper pastor. So um, it's two different words that both translate into English the same way, but a parish is a community entrusted to a pastor as as its proper pastor. So the pastor is the pastor of the parish. So this other priest had the title of pastor, and Father Flager had the title of senior pastor. Senior pastor is not really a title at all. But as best as we can tell, Father Flager was actually the canonical pastor and for some reason was designated senior pastor while this other priest was actually what's called a parochial vicar or the assistant priest and um, and had the title of pastor. But now he's the administrator and the cabinet is the cabinet. But still, all these things are being issued in the name of the cabinet, which raises a whole set of interesting questions. First of all, it's just very unusual that this parish is being so absolutely adamant that the guy is, is innocent without sort of allowing for investigations to take place, the diocesan investigation to take place. Um but, you know, sometimes it can be hard to accept that um, a person who you care about might might be guilty of something which is very difficult. But this thing about withholding the money it, it is really interesting. It's, 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 it's not the kind of thing one – a parish has a right to do. The bishop has a right to tax the parish. And uh, the parish doesn't have a right to say, well, we're not going to pay you that tax. And, uh, and so either the administrator, the priest, is making that move which is an act of disobedience against his bishop. Which to be clear, for, I talked to people in the parish, an official, I yeah. called parish officials and asked yeah. for official clarity. Was yeah. Father, um, I'm trying to remember his name. Um, Father Pastor, we'll call Father him. Pastor. I can't remember either. Uh, Father Pastor, I will, I will look his name up in a moment. To, but to make sure that this was actually done with and through him and that this wasn't, you know, a lay group in the parish sort of grabbing the controls. Uh, and I was assured he was involved in every step of the decision-making process. And this is what we reported, uh, which is very, very interesting because, J.D., the taxa of the bishop on the parish is a legitimate exercise of what? Governance. Yeah. And what do we call it when a either individual or juridic person refuses submission to a legitimate act of governance in the church? We, we generally call that schism. That's the canonical crime of schism. Yeah. Huh. It's really interesting. So it's it's possible here that the pastor 
the administrator, the, the priest who's run, who is ostensibly running the parish right now, it, it's possible that he's guilty of the crime, the canonical crime of schism, which you don't run into every day, and, it, and it's possible here. But Canada we have seen this in the United States before at the parish mm-hmm. level. Well, that's what that's the other thing that's interesting. So it's possible that the pastor is doing this, but the other thing that's possible is that this cabinet of lay people have essentially assumed the governance of um, of the parish, and that's a kind of schism too. But it's a kind of old kind of schism. It's not the schism of the pastor saying, "I'm not going to send you any money." It's something that um, we used to see in the United States more often until the Holy See kind of said we needed to knock it off and make sure pastors were always in charge. Right, Ed? Yes, this is lay trusteeism. Lay trusteeism. It's lay trusteeism all over again. I, I find it, it fascinating. Lay trusteeism is a phenomenon that happened in the early part of the, the history of this country. Uh, so what would happen is that uh, a group of um, Czech farmers would all make their way out to some portion of Iowa or Nebraska, and they would have their area, and they'd all be Czech there, and they'd be farming and whatnot. And then they'd decide that they needed a church because they were devout, and so they'd build a church, and so they'd write back to Czechia, uh, the Czech lands, and uh, ask a bishop Are you there, trying to say Czechoslovakia? Well, no, I'm not trying to say Czechoslovakia because Czechoslovakia is an artificial construction of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, and the Czech Republic is no longer even the official name of the country. The Czech Republic changed the name of its country to Chechia, not Chechnya, Chechia a couple of years ago. But those people wouldn't have thought of themselves as being from Chechia either. They would have thought of themselves as being from Bohemia, from a part part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire called Bohemia. And um, I feel like if I say Bohemia, people will think that I mean some part of San Francisco where, Beatniks. you know, everyone sort of lives like beatniks. Exactly. But yeah. they my would have written my, – my, my grandmother comes from Bohemian stock from that part of the country. And uh, she used to be very clear growing up when I would say, wait, so are, is your family – and I would list various uh, modern – uh, and sometimes not so modern uh, European nationalities from that neck of the woods. And she would get very upset and she would clarify indignantly, no – Bohemian. Right. She did not wish to be identified as being either Polish or German or Austrian. Right, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, a, in a, a Nebraska, where I used to live, the, the Bohemians referred to themselves as Bohunks, which I suppose is a slang term for Bohemian. I don't know. Sounds like Anyhow. a professional wrestling term. Anyhow, the Bohunks, I hope I'm allowed to say that. I hope it's not like their word. But <laughs> the bo- fucked out of this. <laughs> I'm about to find out. You're about to be canceled by the square heads of flyover country. Oh, my oh boy. Gosh. Oh, I, flyover country. Be, having being an admiral in Nebraska's Navy, and flyover country is our word. And, uh, <laughs> I'm a Midwest again. boy. I can say it. Oh, baloney. Baloney. You lived in Chicago for about three minutes before you went off to Hogwarts. Anyhow, the Bohemians of Iowa or Nebraska would write back to a bishop in Bohemia or to a monastery, more often a Benedictine monastery in Bohemia, and say, send us a priest. We have built a church. Send us a priest. And the priest would come, and he would start celebrating Mass there. But nothing was really set up as a diocese. And uh, and the people owned the church. They were the trustees of the church. And as these places became territories of the United States, they would eventually register it as a nonprofit corporation, and they would be the trustees of the nonprofit corporation. And the pastor wouldn't exercise any authentic control at all. And what would happen is, and there are really fascinating stories about this in American history, what would happen is eventually the pastor would take them off. He would tell them something they didn't want to hear. And they, those those old bohunks, again, I'm sorry, those old bohunks would walk down to the parish and they'd pack up the pastor's stuff and they'd put it on the front lawn and they'd change the locks. And maybe they'd write back to the bishop, another bishop in Bohemia and say, send us another guy. 
um, or or by the time U.S. dioceses were being established, it right to the bishop in some you know U- well, U.S. Okay, area, so this is an important historical detail to clarify: is the reason that they were writing back to Bohemia and asking for priests and feeling they could send them away at will is first of all the bishop in Bohemia is sending a priest more or less at his own discretion in large right, yeah. very kind of him and it's a contribution to the right. evangelization of the nation and so it's great, but also he has no canonical control over these people and it's there right. very much at their suffrage, so they were in that sense within their rights to lo- change the locks. But and things would change because dioceses began to be established in the United States. And but let's be clear. The reason historically that they had to write back to the old country for priests is because American East Coast dioceses did not want to help. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. The priests did not go west with the settlers. Oh. It was hardship. They liked it in the cities where the church had a good institutional presence and a large Catholic diaspora. And let's be clear. The reason these guys were out on the plains building their own churches and writing back to the old country is they weren't getting any priests from the new country. Well, that's really interesting. But at the same time, as dioceses began to be more formalized in the United States, and it was clear who was sort of in charge of what, the bishops did want to exercise authority over those places. And that's where the conflict would come. Yes. They didn't want the guy... You know, the, the the parishioners who were the trustees didn't want the guy. The bishop said, this is your pastor, especially as he started assigning pastors himself. They'd say, no, we've always locked out the guy we don't want. We're going to kick this guy out, and, and bishop, there's nothing you can do about it. And the Holy See wrote to the bishops of the United States, and they said, get lay trusteeism under control. The, pa- uh, the parish is a portion of the people of God entrusted to a pastor as its proper pastor. The pastor is the pastor of a parish. And you have to get this under control, and you have to set it up in civil law to make sure that it's under control, and you can't let people be running the parish. Now, that's not clericalism, because the truth is— No, that's just good hierarchy. That's good hierarchy. The church is a hierarchical structure, and part and parcel with the power of orders is the ability to participate in the power of governance, and the bishop is able to appoint as the the leader of a parish, the shepherd and pastor of a parish, the the priest of his designation. And so, you know, it's not proper— for lay people to be able to kick out their pastor any more than it's proper for my children to be able to kick me out of the house. Right. And um, the circumstances of building what is essentially a private chapel for yourself out on the plains of Nebraska before there was any law or right. government or diocese or, you know, institutional structure there. That's, that's like one Blake thing. Shelton's ranch. Am I right? Hey, oh, no idea. But um, that's the guy that's marrying the lady from. Oh, oh, oh Blake um, Shelton's ranch. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. He, oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. The, the future Mr. Gwen Stefani. The future Mr. Gwen right? <laughs> The... <laughs> And the I'd country like singer formerly known as Gavin Rossdale? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Okay. Go ahead. And best of luck to them. Mm-hmm. So Live anyhow. The dream. Yeah. So uh, that's different than. That, that is different than when the, the institutional hierarchy of the church has arrived, that a diocese has been erected, that there is a legitimate bishop with jurisdiction over the territory. Then the whole game changes. If you really are sort of in terra nullis, um, you know, you can you, – you know, and you've gone to the trouble of building yourself a chapel and sourcing a priest who's able to, you know, come to. Okay, that's one. That's one playing field. But it's a different thing altogether. To say, well, we want to keep this as basically the Wild West after civilization arrives. Sorry, that's not how it works. Once the diocese is erected, once there's a proper bishop, this is the way of it. And this is, I mean, this is also to be clear how the evangelization is supposed to proceed. That you know. The, the church will grow in an area and become more firmly established, which is why dioceses move from the control of propaganda fide in Rome to the congregation uh, for bishops and the congregation for clergy and, uh, you know, other sort of normal time uh, Vatican dicasteries. That this is, this is how we want things to go. And you can't just say, well, we used to do it this way before this was a state and before this was a city and before this was a town or a diocese or a parish. It's like, well, sorry, times have changed. 
But yeah, not in the south side right. of Chicago. Apparently. But not in the south side of Chicago where we may be seeing a sort of re- revival of lay trusteeism. And so it will be really interesting to see. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I, I'm just really interested to see how how whether, how and whether the archdiocese will respond. I think the archdiocese has to respond. I think they're going to not want to respond. They're going to want to do everything they can to keep this off of their plate. I, I genuinely believe that. But at a certain point, if the if the parish is either refusing the go- the governance of its pastor and saying, "Well, we're we can somehow control the bank accounts and we're not sending the money," or the diocese or the the properly appointed administrator is refusing the legitimate governance of his bishop, either of those are very very serious things. And I don't know if they if they sort of hold out. I think that they're going they're not going to get what the, they're not going to get what they want. It's not like the bishop's going to say, "Well, in that case." You know, I'm not going to cancel the investigation. But, you know, he's not going to say that, but they are going to prompt, I think, some action. I'm really curious to see. This is a a, a moment where a bishop seems nearly obliged to act in one way or another. Now, he can act in any number of ways. He could act sort of canonically, bringing down the fire of the law and, and, uh, and declaring the, the, the administrator to be in schism or issuing penalties against the people themselves. He can do those things, or there may be some better means of working this out. And hopefully, I mean, honestly, you and I may differ on this, but I, I honestly hope that he can work it out in some more um, pastoral way by which they agree to submit to the authority of the bishop without sort of the fire of penalties, just because I think that the law even prefers that. And I think it's, you know. Oh, no, in this case, but, the law definitely prefers it. And also there's right, a question right. of, is this is this the intention? I mean, here's right. the problem, I, I think, that really what this comes down to and why I think the bishop has to act is it is all of the canonical things that we've just discussed. And I, I don't, I didn't get the impression talking to anyone in the parish that uh, their intention was schism with the Archdiocese of right, Chicago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but their very clearly stated intention, which was in the sort of press release where they announced that this is what they were going to be doing, is to coerce the, the Archbishop, to coerce Cardinal Subic into doing what they want. And, yeah. and you know, whether this is the canonical crime of schism or, you know, a, a, a sort of, you know, odd reemergence of lay trusteeism, uh, you know, all of that to one side... You, you can't have a parish in your diocese basically say, we are going to try and strong arm the bishop into doing what we want. Right. The tail can't wag the dog. Right. You know, that that's the equivalent of, you know, some bishop from the floor of the USCCB trying to dictate policy to the, you know, to the, the executive of the conference. You just can't have that. That's right. So, I, you know, I hate to sort of say, we'll see what happens, but... You know, I, I think that the Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago is going to have to act in some way, and um, we'll see what that is. Good luck, because this is going to be a hard net. This could grasp. get very, very sticky, and especially if if these allegations are judged to be credible. And um, the case. So, Can what's we happening not say with the credible, case? Please, I hate sorry, that you're right. Word. Uh, no, it's true. You're right. I shouldn't have said it. Um, it's not canonically meaningful in any way. But if these. Um, if these allegations are judged to have the semblance of truth, so what's happening with the priest's investigation is um, he was investigated by the State Department of Child and Family Services, but not with regard to the veracity of the historical allegations, rather only with regard to whether or not he poses a present danger to children, and he was adjudged um, not to pose a, a, a present and immediate danger to children, which was not a judgment on the veracity of these historical allegations, just to say there's no children, child in his immediate doesn't seem to be any child in his immediate, you know, um, orbit in danger of being abused by him. Um, so that was the Division of Child and Family Services. I suspect the criminal statute of limitations on these 
allegation, the you know Illinois criminal statute of limitations on these allegations has expired, um, and so uh, it it falls only to the canon law, really, and uh, and so. Um, the church is now doing what's called a preliminary investigation of these allegations, and then the Cardinal Archbishop, with the help of the Archdiocesan Review Board, will make a judgment as to whether or not these allegations contain what's called the semblance of truth, which is a very low standard of proof, which basically means, is it plausible that they could have happened? And if they make that judgment, then the, the Cardinal's obligation then is to send the cases on to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Now, the CDF has a couple of decisions to make then. Um, in these cases, the Church's statute of limitations, which is called prescription, has also expired, but it's often the case these days that the CDF waives prescription, sort of um, dispenses from the statute of limitations. And after that, it can decide whether or not to have a trial at the CDF, whether to have a trial at the CDF, whether to have something called an administrative penal process at the CDF, whether to tell the Archdiocese of Chicago to have a trial, whether to tell the Archdiocese of Chicago to have an administrative penal process, or whether to choose some sort of extrajudicial remedy, which means there's some reason why they think they can't have an administrative penal process even, but they're going to issue some decree by which the guy's not going back to ministry. So there are a number of options that are available to the CDF at that point. But I think even if the case simply goes to the CDF, this parish, which is sort of engaging in like this civic protest against their bishop, is going to, I think, up the ante even more. I, I, and, I fully expect if, you know, what we're seeing now is possibly accidental Schism, I think it will be pretty damn formal pretty quickly if this file goes to the CDF. And so it'll be especially interesting to see, you know, so how does the Cardinal Archbishop respond? That's a question. But another question is, how does the priest at the center of this, namely Father Flager himself, does he, at, at, at any point will he feel, and he's maintained his innocence, at any point will he feel he has an obligation to say to the parish, hey, we're Catholic here. Being Catholic means that we accept the legitimate governance of our bishop. So let's all submit ourselves to the process and you know entrust ourselves to the process and the mercy of God and see what happens. I mean, I'll be curious to see if he intervenes. I'll be curious to see if Cardinal Supic intervenes. I suspect Cardinal Supic does not want to intervene. And I suspect if he does intervene, he's going to do everything he can to talk through it with this parish and see if he can work it out before he brings down the fire of the law, which I think is the right thing to do. Um, but it is, I think, unquestionably, if it goes to the CDF, which with three allegations, m my bet is that it's going to go to the CDF. Yeah, I, I suspect I, it's going to intensify at that point. One allegation from the 1970s is, right. you know, hard to hard to come to any conclusions one way or the other. But three, and, and again, they, it keep they keep coming. Yeah, a consistent pat, and and they represent a consistent pattern. And now, you know, if the first two it was brothers, and so it was like, well, maybe they colluded with each other was the implication. But now there's a third person who is not related to those men, and so, um, you know, a consistent pattern across a panoply of people is the kind of thing that often points to the, to a thing like this going to Rome. Yeah. Okay. We'll see. We're we at will an see. hour. Do you want to we do are at an hour. Else? Yeah. As you recall, the. Fund for the Continuing Ministry of the Emeritus Archbishop of Washington, Ed. Uh, what, what was the value of that fund in fiscal year 2020? Do you just recall? Just a whisper north of $2 million. Just a whisper north of $2 million. That's an interesting figure. I got myself to wondering, as we talked about all this, I got myself to wondering, what can you get for $2 million? What, what is, what? you know, I don't have $2 million. Uh, Ed, do you have $2 million? I do not. <laughs> Well, we have that in common. Uh, I don't have $2 million. I suspect even if you took – now, you know, I, I don't own 90% of my house. I have practically no equity in my house. But I suspect even if you took the equity of my house, even maybe if you took the whole value of my house plus my retirement, I, I don't think I would still have $2 million. 
I don't have $2 million. I don't have anything close to it. But I started to find myself wondering, you know, what could he get for $2 million? So, Ed, we're going to play a game called More or Less Than $2 Million. <laughs> okay. Are you ready to play? I am. Okay. More or less than $2 million. Ed, let's start, uh, let's start with a race car. A used, game used, race used, Formula One, BAR Honda 2001 Jacques Villeneuve retired race car. Wait, Jacques Villeneuve? Sure. Is that someone? Yeah, that's he's a, he's a, he's famous for the driving of the race cars. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm gonna say no. I'm gonna say less. I'd say that I'd uh, Vanna. I'm gonna price that at 1.25 million. Well, it is less, but it's a lot less. This is actually the lowest priced item in our game, Ed. Uh, oh wow! A BAR Honda 2001 Jacques Villeneuve Formula game used Formula One race car. You can pick one of those up, Ed, for the low, low price of forty six thousand eight hundred British pounds. No kidding. Yeah, race cars. <laughs> I learned today are surprisingly, surprisingly affordable. <laughs> Surprise. Yeah, I mean, I again, I don't have, I don't think I have forty six thousand eight hundred pounds, uh, but. Closer to affordable than two million dollars. Wow, I'm that's me told. Okay, Ed. Old House K. This three-acre South Carolina private island, located just a ten-minute boat ride from Windmill Harbor, is the ideal escape to paradise. As you arrive at the dock, you can see the westward-facing three-story observation tower with the most amazing sunset views over the water. A gorgeous home sits on the property, and the island is designed with the potential for a second home site with two septic tanks and, get this, six wells. The island is powered entirely by solar energy with top-of-the-line backup battery generators to provide a comfortable off-the-grid escape without losing cell phone service. A Windmill Harbor boat slip and a Carolina skiff are included. The home, Ed, 1,800 square feet, three-bedroom, three-bath. There's deep water, a deep water port, and a marsh. A master bedroom on the first floor, a dining area, eat-in kitchen, appliances, bookshelves, cathedral ceilings, central air, heat, which, you know, is one of the things you need, a geothermal HVAC system, photovoltaic, solar power, solar water heater, spray foam insulation, solar panels, Ed, Old House K. Sounds really like the ideal escape to paradise. More or less than $2 million? Either way, if I had $2 million, this is absolutely what I would spend (laughs) it on. This sounds like paradise. Um, uh, More or less, I'm going to say less. Well, you would be right. The list price for Old House K is exactly $2 million, but it's been on the market for a while. And I have a feeling, Ed, that if you come in with $1.999, you're going to get it. I'm going to make a phone call to a certain retired cardinal and see if he'll spot me. (laughs) All right. Shall we keep playing? Please. Okay. And let's let's say that we need to get out of our private island pretty quickly. How how could we go? How could we get out? Uh, jetpack? Well, a jetpack would work, but what about our own seven passenger plus pilot helicopter? That's right, Ed. <laughs> it's the 2010 Bell 427. Like new, this 2010 Bell 427 has high-visibility blades, a flight instrument kit, a 28-amp battery, dual controls, rotor brake, eight bows, A20 headsets, kink KX 144A with glid slope nav, encoding altimeter, compass system, KCS 55A provisions, a converter with KI 525A avionics blower kit, and other helicoptery things, including, Ed, get this, 
a PAV80 entertainment system. You don't get that anywhere. And a PS engineering audio panel engine fire extinguisher system, crew, passenger, and baggage, automatic door opener, satellite radio with weather crew and passenger floor protectors, avionics, cooling fan, precise flight, pulse light, USB, charging receptacle, cyclic switching, more or less than $2 million. First of all, why do you need an entertainment system on a helicopter? I don't know. I don't know anything about this. I don't. I was trying to think. I don't know if I've ever been in a helicopter. I haven't. Um, I'm scared of helicopters, if I'm honest with you. Oh, okay. They have a tendency to crash. Okay. I recently watched this television program. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's called Occupied. It's a, it's a Norwegian oh, television program. And um, I was laughing because he recommended it to me. Uh, anyhow, the, in the first episode, the prime minister of Norway is kidnapped in a helicopter. And it was a pretty nice helicopter, but I don't think it was as nice as the 2010 Bell 427. No, it doesn't sound nearly as nice. And I want to be clear. You said as new? Like new. Like, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a 2010. Paying, I'm not paying north of $2 million for, for <laughs> a used helicopter. I mean, come on. No way. Do you know that the it has an Aircom heater with a chin bubble defroster and an Ardex C406 NHM ELT Garmin 530W Garmin GDL 69A? See, the problem is there are no commas in this description, so I don't know where one thing stops and the next thing begins. I, even so, I – no. I, two million – two million – no way. You don't pay two million for used goods. You don't do it. you want to put a bid on it? I will offer $750,000. <laughs> it is less than two million. But if you've got a fund, let's say with your name on it, with $2 million in it, you're going to spend most of it because this helicopter costs $1.949 million. Okay. How far, what's the range on this thing? It does not say that, but I suspect pretty far. I mean, it's got you, – You better be able got, to go uh, – weather and audio interface to GNS 530 and audio system Garmin SL40. You, again, that's not nothing. A G – TX330 transponder traffic advisory system. That sounds like something that you would have in a helicopter that can go pretty far. Okay, but I mean... Right. Plus seven passengers. So I think this thing could actually make money. I, I think you could. I think you should buy it because I think you could make your money back if you charge rides, if you take people on rides. And these are not just any passengers. This is six-place club seating with a corporate headliner with AC. So yeah, maybe, but I have never been anywhere in the world where I wanted to go with more than six people. No, that's true. I'm just saying you could charge them. That's true. Okay. So yeah. okay, but so what was the actual sticker price on this bad boy? One point nine four nine million. Which means if you have an oh. account with two with your name on it with two million dollars in it, you could buy this helicopter. Okay. <laughs> Let's get past this helicopter nonsense. Let's say we don't want to be bound by trivial things like gravity. Let's say, Ed, that we are ready to ride to space in the Virgin Galactic Unity. Virgin Galactic's rocket plane drops from a specially engineered aircraft before boosting itself to 50 miles in altitude. Now, I will admit, there is a question about whether 50 miles of altitude is really space, right? Because the Kármán line, which some people use to designate the difference between the Earth's atmosphere and space, is at 62 miles. But 50 miles is by most conventional things space. And if you were in, say, the Space Force of the United States military, it would be enough for you to earn your astronaut wing. So 50 miles is nothing to sneeze at. It's space. And it's, you know, the gravity is not gravity-ish there. Um, do you think, Ed, that if you had an account with your name on it with $2 million in it, you could take a ride to space in the Virgin Galactic Unity? Ooh, this is right on the line for me. I'm going to say no. I'm going to say this is north of $2 million. Oh, I'm sorry, my friend. But if you have an account with $2 million in it and your name on it, you are rich enough to go to space. You can ride to space on the Virgin Galactic Unity, Ed, for just $255,000. That's it? That's it. $250,000. You're going to space. Well, 
<laughs> You're going 50 miles in altitude. Okay, if you no, I want to be clear. When you line. say going to space, I here's here's I don't know what this carbon line business is, but I, I here's my definition of space. Space is the space is the point at which if they if they open the door and kick you out, you don't fall down. Yeah, I think that's so. Okay, so well, you, I think you just fall down slowly. Actually, you'd have to be you'd have to surpass like you'd have to be further than the moon to not be slowly falling to the earth. I think. I think everything ha- the Earth has such a gravitational pull that you would be gradually rotating your way into Earth, even if you were as far as the moon. Okay, but, but you wouldn't be in free fall back to you, the Earth. You would so. not be. You wouldn't be. I don't think. I don't. Now again, I'm a guy who spent literally two minutes learning about this, but okay. I don't think at 50 miles you're pulling a parachute and it's doing much good. I think you're spacing around up there. Interesting. Okay. Do you I, get a I'm watch sure with I'm this hear flight. From, do you get a watch? Look, you drop two hundred fifty-five thousand dollars. You you're giving to Richard Branson. Does he have a company called Virgin Watches? No, but there are there are basically three accepted watches for space. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. There are. I mean, they, so the, you the, should. You're the kind of guy who, if you had an account with your name on it and two hundred and two million dollars, you would spend it well. Like I, I would just be buying a whole lot of ice cream, but you would be buying good stuff. I, I I like to think if the Lord wanted to give me or you know designated donors wanted to give me two million bucks to support me, I I could find a. Um, I could find a good good use for it. Watches would make up a significant amount. No, but if you're going to space, really, there are only three watches that are you know oh. available and respectable for this, and they're mm-hmm. tested so that you could actually do it in space. They're the first space is tested. The, yeah. I, so, for example, the 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 original Moon watch that you know the the flight crew of Apollo 11 wore, and most NASA astronauts wore for forever, is the is the Omega Speedmaster, man on the moon. Uh, it's a manual. It's not an automatic, the original moon watch, because obviously an automatic watch has an internal pendulum that winds it with yeah, the motion yeah, yeah. of your arms. And in space, there's no gravity, so that isn't going to work for you. So you've got to wind it you know, with your fingers by hand using the crown. Um, so that's that's sort of like the granddaddy, red-blooded American rock flag and eagle watch is the Omega Speedmaster. There's the modern... If this doesn't work, if the pillar goes under, you honestly, I think a career that you have in, I think that you could have a pretty decent career selling watches to rich guys. If I were yeah, a rich guy and you said that rock flag and rich guys, me. I want rich guys to buy me watches. Yeah, That's but a you get thing. a commission and you can get an employee discount and things like that. If you said that rock flag eagle thing or whatever um, to me, I would uh, probably buy it. That's true. Okay, so there's there's the update. There's the X thirty. There's the Omega X thirty three, which is what they've been wearing on the recent ones. Which has got like a digital face on it, and it's. I mean, it's, yeah, I know what that. All of them are. I mean, to be clear, all three of these watches are like EVA certified. So if you, you know, if you're going out, I mean, you can see pictures of astronauts with the watch strapped with Velcro around the outside of their spacesuits mm-hmm. while they're doing something. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that. Yeah, and like the te- the variation in temperature. Bear in mind, these are mechanical watches, so like the variation in temperature between the cold vacuum of space and like going in the pressure differentials. Like this mm-hmm. is serious. This is serious engineering here. Yeah. Um, the, the could you Russian- have a calculator watch? I don't know. Like, because sometimes maybe you when need I to do told a, you at the beginning of this podcast that you don't set out to annoy me, I lie. Sometimes you, you need to do a calculation me. in space, Ed. I mean, you have to ask myself, what's the vector of this or that? There's anyway, a lot of vectors. The third watch, by the way, just to complete, is the is the Fortis B42 Cosmonaut, which um, they supply all these watches to. Uh, not just there's the Russian no space way you didn't look up space watches after I started talking about space. There's no way you just had this off the top of your head. No, I absolutely have this information off the top of my head. Oh my um, god! The, the Fortis B42 Cosmonaut uh, also has been issued to a lot of NASA astronauts mm-hmm. because, of course, when we mm-hmm. retired, we being the United States, retired the space shuttle program mm-hmm. for a couple of years. There, the only way we could get people up into space was we had to contract with the Russians to shoot them up for us. And so guys that were being sent from NASA up through mm-hmm. the Russian space program on Russian rockets were also given, issued with, yeah, yeah, in addition yeah. to an Omega, they were also given a Fortis. Um, the Fortis 
probably best value for money of all three, if I'm being honest with you. Uh, you know, you, you can have one of these, just slipping completely into the commercial thing, you can have one of these used, but like new, like that helicopter, and you can get one of these, you know, not just for under two grand, you can okay. get one for under 1500 at oh, any cool. time. And if you keep your eyes open, you can probably get one for under a grand. You can probably well, let's talk for... about what you can't get for under a grand or under $1,500. But maybe you could get and, – and this one, this is the one. The one that's coming up right now is the one that I thought I'm kind of like, let me give one Ed, the Ed one that's going to really make him excited. I didn't know it was going to okay. be Ride to Space, which actually wasn't it for Space Watch that doesn't even have a freaking calculator. What is the point if it doesn't even have a calculator? Okay. Let's move to the one. This is our final one, Ed. If you had an account with your name on it and $2 million – could you buy this? Is this more or less than $2 million? Last one for you. Ed, could you buy an MILB minor league baseball team for $2 million? Oh, wow. I knew. I knew you'd love it. Oh, I love this. I, I knew it. You want it. I do. You don't even care about the K anymore. No. Oh. So, I mean, assuming we're going bottom of the market here, so this is single A. Well, there's lower baseball than that, but sure. Yeah, but I mean, if it's M- if it's MILB, this is affiliate baseball. Yeah, but there's rookie ball and yeah, okay. short, short Yeah, you can probably get a team somewhere for $2 million. In 2004, George Brett of Kansas City Royals fame bought himself the Class A Tri-City Dust Devils, Ed, for $2 million. That's the dream, isn't it? <laughs> So, more or less than two million. I don't know. Call George Brett, but at least it's possible. Oh man, I'm so excited for baseball. Yeah, and I'm excited for you. I hope that you get the Tri City Dust Devils, and I hope they have a hell of a year. I just hope that my local minor league team has a season this year. They've told me they have. I've got my season tickets. Uh, They didn't play a single game last year, and it broke my heart. But well, I hope that they play for your sake too. I need baseball, JD. I need it. You've been listening to the Pillar Podcast. Pillar Media Production and Ed and JD Joint. I'm your host and Pillar co-founder, JD Flynn, and I was joined by my podcasting partner, Ed Condon, who needs baseball.